Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. I'm Karen Thornburr. I'm the director of the Asia Center here at Harvard, as well as a professor in East Asian languages and civilizations and in comparative literature. And it's my delight this afternoon to welcome uh, to our stage here an incredibly exciting strong panel on strongman politics in the 21st century. I'm going to just briefly introduce our speaker, our speakers, thank our sponsors, and then let the panel uh, take over. They'll be speaking each for about 10 minutes, and then we'll open up the floor for what almost certainly will be a really riveting discussion. So joining us this afternoon is Professor Elsa Clave. Professor Clave is a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard University Asia Center. She's assistant professor of Southeast Asian Studies at Goethe University in Frankfurt, and she's an associate researcher at the Centre Asie du Sud-Est in Paris. Her research focuses on the cultural history of Islam and on political culture in Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Also joining us this afternoon is Aisha Kadigolu, who's a visiting scholar at the Minda de Gunsburg Center for European Studies here at Harvard. She's also a professor of political science at Savans University in Istanbul. She received her PhD from Boston University, and she currently researches the, nature, the changing nature of opposition in new authoritarian regimes, with a particular focus on contemporary Turkey. We're delighted to welcome as well Professor Joseph Fusmith. Professor Fusmith is a professor of political science at Boston University, and he's center associate at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies here at Harvard. He's one of the world's leading experts on Chinese politics and China's modern history, and he has our special thanks for agreeing to join today's panel on very late notice. We're welcoming as well Professor Valerie Sperling, who's professor of political science at Clark University, where she teaches and researches on comparative politics with a focus on Russia, revolution, communism, the transition to democracy, and women's studies, among other topics. Her most recent book is Sex, Politics, and Putin, Political Legitimacy in Russia, which was recently published by Oxford University Press. It won numerous awards and was named one of the top 10 books on Russia from 2014. As our moderator this afternoon, we have uh, Tom Vallely, who's senior advisor for mainland Southeast Asia at Harvard Kennedy School's Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. He's the founder of the Harvard Vietnam Program, and he also directs the Harvard Myanmar Program at the Ash Center. He's an expert in East and Southeast Asia with a wealth of experience in the region. And we're very grateful to have him here today as moderator for the panel. So in addition to thanking our panelists in advance, I'd also like to thank the many research centers on campus whose sponsorship helped bring this panel together. The Harvard University Asia Center, the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies, and the Fairbank Center uh, for Chinese Studies offer generous financial support. In addition, the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, the Minda de Gunsburg Center for European Studies, and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School have added their names as co-sponsors for today's event, and we thank all of the above centers. Finally, I'd like to thank two of our staff members, James Evans from the Fairbanks Center and Holly Angel from the Asia Center, who really were the ones who did all the work on this panel, invited the speakers, did the advertising, did the conceptualizing. They basically did everything, including writing up my introductory remarks. So thank you to our staff, without whom none of what we do uh, would be possible. 
So please join me in thanking our staff and in welcoming today's panelists. Thank you very much for coming. I'm sure everybody would prefer to be home watching the hearings, <laughs> not. Um, so I'm going to talk about Russia with regard to Vladimir Putin as a strong man whose regime is legitimized to a certain extent by machismo. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with these kinds of images of Putin. So whether he's saving the camera crew from the Siberian tiger or whether he's taking his shirtless fishing trips or um, fighting the fires outside of Moscow from a firefighting helicopter or driving the Formula One racing car. Um, he's being shown to be strong and sort of stereotypically masculine and manly. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about why this image works so well in Russia today and then I'll give you some illustrations of what that strongman politic looks like both abroad in international relations and at home in domestic politics. So part of the popular enthusiasm for Putin and his manly man uh, image has to do with the 1990s in Russia. After the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia became an independent state, as you know, but at the same time, it lost its superpower status and it lost its ideological reason for being. And national pride plummeted. And in part, this is because of the introduction of capitalism in Russia in the 1990s, which was accompanied by impoverishment. And it looked to many people as though the Western states uh, that were advising Russia at the time um, were really out to destroy the economy and gain Russia's natural uh, resources sort of on the cheap. Uh, and meanwhile, Russia was being led by Boris Yeltsin, who you know, over the course of the decade became kind of an embarrassment uh, for his incompetence and his drunkenness and his growing physical decrepitude. So by the time that Putin came to power uh, in the year 2000, Russia was seen as weak, both at home uh, and abroad, and the population in the Kremlin were therefore interested in resuscitating the country's national pride and international image. So when Putin came to power, his machismo, his macho image was mobilized as a public relations uh, tool, as a way to sort of broadcast both his legitimacy and Russia's strength and to rescue the nation from its state of weakness. Uh, and Putin's ideological position at the same time was about reasserting strength and sovereignty. So Russia has certainly become more assertive um, abroad under Putin, with the most obvious example probably being um, the Russian annexation of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. And there was a big campaign justifying this annexation, this violation of international law. Um, and the focus of the justification was simply the assertion that Crimea belonged to Russia, that Crimea is ours. The Russian population was largely thrilled about this. Um, it was a big boost for Putin, whose approval ratings then skyrocketed to, from around 69% to about 88% approval in October of 2014. So these kinds of endeavors were recognized uh, by various pro-Putin, uh, Kremlin-sponsored youth groups in Russia that embraced Putin for his patriotism and his strength and his protection of Russia's national interests. And I just want to give you some idea of what that looked like. Um, in October of 2014, for Putin's 62nd birthday, 
one of these pro-Putin youth groups called Network, produced two gifts that emphasize Putin's achievements as a strong national leader, navigating the sort of hostile international environment where he had to fend off all these Russian, all these Western efforts to, uh, to weaken Russia. So the first of these gifts uh, was an art exhibit that featured renderings of the 12 labors of Putin. So it's like, for those of you who know the mythology, it's like the 12 labors of, of Hercules. And you can see here that Putin is shielding Russia from the economic sanctions that were imposed uh, after Russia took over Crimea, where the hydra you know, is the sanctions. And in the painting, you can see that Putin has already chopped off the hydra head that belongs to the United States. Um, the second gift was a series of murals, these giant patriotic murals painted on exterior walls in seven cities um, of Russia, each one illustrating one of Putin's strongman achievements uh, for, uh, for Russia. So strength, remembrance, the Arctic, um, sovereignty, history, security, uh, and the Olympics. And altogether, it makes an anagram for the Russian word spasiba, which means thank you. So, uh, so Russia was finally winning with Putin. He's also been portrayed as a strongman um, winning the machismo competition against other state leaders who are Russia's foreign opponents uh, in the West and who are portrayed as weak and as effeminate and as insufficiently manly compared to Putin. So one emblematic example of the idea of putting down the masculinity of your foreign opponents um, was in the news in July 2014. This was just after the US had imposed a round of sanctions on Russia uh, in the wake of the shooting down of um, flight MH17 in eastern Ukraine. So Dmitry Ragozin, who's Russia's deputy prime minister, he tweeted out this pair of photos um, you know, with the caption saying, we have different values and different allies. Um, and the implication, right, is that a, a poodle is all that Obama, all President Obama could handle, whereas Putin, with this potentially dangerous leopard, was a much stronger person. Um, the Russian social scientist, Tatiana Ryabova, has examined the way that President Obama was portrayed in Russian political discourse, and she points to a number of examples where Obama is being demasculinized in this, uh, in this way. So an art exhibit in uh, October of 2014 that was organized by a different youth group um, uh, affiliated with Putin's United Russia Party, it included these two posters that featured Putin and Obama, where in one you can see um, Putin taking Obama down in a martial arts move, and another showing uh, President Obama as a child uh, being disciplined by Putin. Another Russian political cartoon that also contrasts uh, Putin's and Obama's relative masculinity is this one. Um, it says, be prepared. Uh, and, and President Obama, who in the picture is wearing the red necktie of the communist youth organization, the, uh, the young pioneers from back in the Soviet days, uh, Obama is saying, Uncle Volodya is strong, you know, with awe. All right, now while Putin is not going around talking about how much more manly he is uh, than Donald Trump, there have been a lot of implications, artistic uh, and otherwise, that Trump is somehow <laughs> enthralled to Putin, right? Um, certainly there was, uh, there was a lot of discussion about this in July when Trump and Putin had their summit meeting in Helsinki. And having that summit was good for Putin, you know, in that it legitimates him when the US president says, Putin is such a great, uh, Putin is such a great guy. And because it showcases Russia as being an equal to the United States on the world stage. 
Now at home, Putin's power is rooted in that same sort of strongman politics, which rests on uh, a, a traditionalistic conservatism that has an explicitly gendered and homophobic and anti-feminist content. Um, most famously, as I'm sure you've heard, we've seen homophobia embodied in Russian legislation. Uh, so in 2013, there was a ban on uh, what's referred to as homosexual propaganda. Um, Russia's straight pride flag with the hashtag a real family also reflects this way of thinking. And the increasingly traditional view of gender roles that's embodied by Putin's regime, and especially by the regime's ally, the Russian Orthodox Church, can be seen in attitudes expressed toward feminists and feminism in Russia. The leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Patriarch Kirill, for example, said in April 2013 that feminism is dangerous because feminist groups say that women's freedom comes from outside of marriage um, and outside of the family, but that in truth, a woman, uh, and I quote, a woman must be focused inwards, where her children are, where her home is, and if this incredibly important function of women is destroyed, then everything will be destroyed the family, and also the motherland. Um, so from Patriarch Kirill's perspective, the very nation is at risk from feminism. And the prosecution of the feminist art collective Pussy Riot that I imagine some of you have heard about in, in 2013 is probably the most obvious example of repression of uh, feminists in Russia. So just as a reminder, Pussy Riot is uh, the group of young women who in February 2012 went into Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior. Uh, and they sang about 40 seconds of an anti-Putin song um, uh, that they had written before they were uh, removed bodily from the premises of the church. Uh, they called their song the, a punk prayer and the chorus of the song prevailed upon the Virgin Mary to kick Putin out of power. And it included a line that was seen by some as being particularly offensive, um, and that line went, shit, shit, holy shit, excuse me. Um, so three of the women in the group were, uh, were caught and were jailed, and two of them spent almost two years in prison. And what they were convicted of, the reason I shared that line with you, is because they were convicted of a hate crime against the Russian Orthodox Church. And at the trial, it was quite interesting, the judge made it clear that it was Pussy Riot's belief in feminism that was at the heart of their purportedly anti-religious beliefs and that had therefore motivated their crime. Uh, and finally, the anti-feminist implications of strongman politics are also visible in the recent prosecution of a feminist activist in the Russian city of Omsk. Um, her name is Lyubov Kalugina, and she's been criminally charged for some web postings that ostensibly promoted the hatred of men. Uh, so these posts included some tongue-in-cheek images, um, such as this one that says, beat your husband and save Russia. Um, and this one, which is kind of a critique of heteronormativity. So like in the same way that when a woman comes out as a lesbian, sometimes she's told, you just haven't been with the right man yet. So here in this image, a guy is saying, I'm heterosexual. And the response is, well, you just haven't been with the right man yet. So she posted these things on the web. So for these and some other insensitive um, postings that she made, she could face a sentence of up to five years in prison. So just to conclude, um, we can understand this kind of prosecution of feminism, at least um, in part in light of Putin's status 
as a strong man. Um, Putin's uh, political legitimacy as a strong man or a tough guy, it rests on a socially constructed distinction between masculinity and femininity, right? It, it, um, it rests on this social construction idea that feminism disrupts and dismisses. Uh, without widespread accepted stereotypes um, about what constitutes masculinity, what constitutes femininity, but without that whole framework of understanding, you can't really use the kind of political legitimation strategy that the Russian regime has been using. And so feminism is dangerous to the regime because it explicitly questions uh, a patriarchal hierarchy that says that masculinity should be valued over femininity. So in short, uh, Putin's regime and its allies see the danger that feminism presents to strongman politics, which is why they occasionally take the trouble to actually uh, repress it. All right, that's where I'll stop. Thank you very much. So in the Philippines, two men have been qualified as strong men in politics. The deposed dictator Ferdinand Marcos, whose rule ended in 1986, and the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, who is in office since June 2016. Between 30 years of liberal democracy. What needs to be explained now is why people have chosen a strong man to rule the country when things haven't gone so well with the previous one. In a recent article published in The Time, which in fact served as basis for this discussion, um, entitled The Strong Man Era is Here, Here is What It Means for You, the author, Jan Bremer, tried answering the question, and I will shortly quote him. In the Philippines, a rising tide of violent street crime helped elect Rodrigo Duterte, a former mayor who talked more like a mob boss than a president. Well, if one can hardly disagree with the second part of the statement, as Duterte has his own way of expressing himself, um, I must say that the first part is misleading. In fact, if we attribute Duterte's victory to its promise to eradicate crime or to a kind of mass manipulation to get the vote of the poor, we may miss and misunderstand the current political dynamics in the country. Duterte won by a landslide, has a multiple class electoral base, and they are not presented, uh, they are not uneducated people vulnerable to demagoguery as they are often presented and they were not guided by fear when they chose Duterte. And that's a very important thing to remember because strongman politics is often explained as um, being guided by the fear. So what guided their choice then? To think first what happened in the last 30 years in the country, and second, Duterte himself. So let me introduce briefly uh, the background of the last 30 years. In 1986, something called People Power Revolution happened in the Philippines. Basically, people supported by civil society organization, the powerful church, um, took the street and brought markers down. The dictator had to um, go to Hawaii, and the widow of the assassinated opponent, Cory Aquino, became president. But the regime she set up, and which has been continued by the following president, failed in delivering what it has promised to do for a series of reasons. I will just give three of these reasons. 
the most obvious and the one which has been repeated in time. First, the payment of the foreign debt was set as a national priority with a debt servicing reaching 20 to 45% of the government annual budget. And in that context, that was impossible to make the necessary measure and investment in infrastructure, health, education, but also for social security. Second, attempts to conduct structural land reform were hampered by the same elite which supported the government. Wealth remained concentrated in the hand of few families, as it had always been, with some minor changes. And third, human rights violation and corruption continued. And this is very important. Far before Duterte came to power, Philippines was already on the top of the list of the most dangerous country for journalists. Just to give an example, a life costs $300. If someone bothers you, you give $300, a gun, two men, and a motorcycle. This recurrent trilogy continued election after election because the electoral system was made in such a way that people had to give back, uh, the winner had to give back, and by giving back, they could not touch at the system. So what paved the way to Duterte was the combination of the elite monopoly of the electoral system and the continuing concentration of wealth. In fact, Duterte simply proposed to break those two things, and that was his strongest proposition, not the war on drugs. So now we just talk about the war on drugs because that is what is the most spectacular, what is the most shocking, what is the most disturbing. But Duterte's promise and Duterte's strength is not on the war on drugs. So how did he get elected? How did he broke this uh, system? First, because, well, unfortunately, he's not as stupid as people may think so. He's not just a rude man um, using offensive word and disruptive style to make his mark. He's also a man who unfortunately shows great political capital and skills. He has won because of the articulation of both. For the masses, he's not part of the elite, and that's a very good point, but he's not also against the elite. He's an outsider, very well connected, and because he's very well connected, because he has multiple connections, in fact, he's less attached to one party, and in a way, he has more freedom. The difficulty is to balance. For the moment, he has been in office just for two years, and he's done pretty well with that, but it's very short two years, and we don't know how he's going to do in the future. As a strategist, he wins also because he concentrated his effort to get the votes of few regions, the one he knew he could win, despite machine politics. Among them was Mindanao, the largest island in the south, with a concentration of more or less all the problem in the Philippines, but at a higher level. He won in this region, and as a consequence nationally, because of his political record in Davao, a city which he led for 10, 20 years, but also because he was able to speak both to Christian settlers and to the Muslim minority because he was himself a descendant of both groups. And here is one of his major strengths. He can speak to different groups. He does not speak to a majority. He speaks to several groups. The communists, the Muslim rebels, urban poor, middle class, overseas workers, but also businessmen. And he understands the plurality and the division of the Philippines. And he does not try, I would say, to simplify it. 
That is why, when he was mayor, he created the position of deputy mayors and appointed dozens of them from various ethnical groups who presented it in kin-based conflicts. Now that he won and that he's in office, can he reproduce what he did in Mindanao at the national level? Most probably not. He, again, he's in office for two years. He has disrupted the old system, but he has not destroyed it because he needs to maintain this fragile balance and keep powerful supporter. In this context, how can he deliver his promises? One of also the very important promises concern the short-term employment practice called ENDO. Basically in the Philippines, most of the people are hired for contract, for very short contract, less than six months, so that the employer does not need to give packages of benefits. Um, for the moment, he hasn't touched at that, and he can hardly touch it, in fact, because of course, he will really um, have trouble with his supporters. We can see, for the first time, sign of dissatisfaction. In the last three months, he lost 13 points in his survey of approval and trust. Very men, extremely high, but 13 points is a lot. So he still has 75% of the population who approve his politics, and more or less the same number who trust him. But recently, because of the huge inflation, because also of rice shortage, basically because of economical problem, he will have to tackle this issue. He will have to do some social measure. And that will be, I think, in the next six months that we will see if Duterte can really stand for the long term. Thank you. I will just say. Uh, I actually, my research uh, involves uh, not just Turkey, but uh, in my work, uh, I'm, I'm also focusing on Venezuela and Turkey. And uh, I'd like to, uh, although it's an ongoing research, I'd like to share, you know, some of the patterns that I was able to see uh, by studying uh, these two cases. I also read a lot about Poland, those three cases uh, that I'm focusing on. But of course, Poland is a, in a different uh, category. Um, new authoritarian regimes uh, in um, you know, various parts of the world today represent uh, novel forms of government, uh, an expression used uh, by Hannah Arendt you know, when um, you know, she said the regimes in Germany and Soviet Union in the 1940s were not any more or less authoritarian when compared to the authoritarian regimes that existed before them. Uh, they were, in fact, you know, she said, they were qualitatively different. Uh, an insight with which we can look into, you know, what we call strongman politics in this panel. Um, these regimes are distinguished by virtue of the coexistence of elections uh, and authoritarian futures, even though these are elections on an uneven field. Um, in fact, uh, you know, one of the expressions used to characterize these regimes is electoral authoritarianism. Uh, you know, Harvard professors Stephen Levitsky and Luke and Wade, they use the expression competitive authoritarianism. So there are many, many uh, expressions used to uh, describe them. Now, in two of the cases that I closely study, namely Turkey and Venezuela, there were elections past summer. 
Both regimes are uh, currently categorized as not free uh, by the Freedom House. Um, yet, although there were elections, uh, you know, in both cases, uh, you know, the opposition didn't take part in Venezuela. In the Turkish case, opposition did take part, uh, in, in, in rather enthusiastically, in fact. So they were very different uh, in that sense. Um, Yet, although there were elections, the incumbent political parties uh, and leaders have not been losing elections in these countries uh, and have been in power for prolonged periods of time, uh, hence defying uh, political science professor Adam Zaworski's definition of democracy as a system in which political parties lose elections. Um, you know, uh, and he emphasizes actually losing rather than winning. Uh, in fact, the existence of periodic winners and losers, you know, a definition that he forwarded back in 1991. Um, in Turkey, authoritarian features were significantly increased, although they were already there, uh, in the aftermath of the failed coup attempt uh, on July uh, 15, 2016. The coup attempt led to the purges uh, of thousands of civil servants from their jobs through numerous cycles of purges, as well as imprisonment of many journalists and academics. Uh, among the purged citizens, there were about 6,000 academics purged from their you know, positions at the university, including the ones who signed a petition calling for the peaceful resolution of the conflict in the southeast provinces of Turkey. They're known as academics for peace, and there was a huge smearing campaign against them. President Erdogan called them ignorant, dark, colonialist, uh, and called upon all responsible units in the state to take immediate action against all these academics. They were targeted in their homes and in their offices. Some of them found red stars and notes of hatred on their office doors uh, at their universities. A mafia leader said he wanted to take a shower with the blood of these academics. The cases against them is still ongoing every day uh, with new trials every day. Hence, perhaps an expression better than strongman politics could be politics of bullying. Uh, because, you know, I have a, the sense of, uh, you know, I think of strength in a positive way sometimes, I must admit, you know, uh, being a Hannah Arendt fan, you know, this internal dialogue, you know, having something to do with strength. So, you know, maybe the politics of bullying is the more uh, appropriate uh, expression for the kind of politics that we're witnessing. Um, a key opposition leader was imprisoned for about three years ago, um, for about three years in uh, Venezuela, uh, um, for allegedly inciting people to violence against the government by giving subliminal messages in his tweets. A well-known Turkish writer, uh, journalist, was also charged with giving subliminal uh, messages in a TV program, uh, which allegedly you know, indicated his knowledge of the uh, coup attempt. Uh, and he actually received a life sentence recently and has been in prison for over two years. So this actually makes me think that these regimes may actually be learning uh, from uh, each other. My readings, especially on Turkey and Venezuela, led me to underline the following four 
family resemblances, I'm going to call them, uh, you know, uh, fo fo the following four family resemblances in the discourses and strategies of the incumbent political parties in new authoritarian regimes. Of course, needless to mention that, you know, with an awareness of their differences, as well as changes that these regimes display over time. Now, one can study these regimes through various angles. You can, you know, study them uh, by focusing on their international relations. You know, Turkey's EU relations with EU would be, you know, particularly important. Uh, you know, you can study them um, by uh, looking into the uh, predisposition in the society to embracing a leader in the tradition of George Moss, you know, looking into the folkish tradition in Germany. Uh, you know, uh, there uh, you can um, look at the organizational structure of the incumbent political party. You can also look at uh, the lethargy of the opposition, again, in the tradition of those like Heide Holborn, you know, who studied SPD during the rise, of, uh, rise to power of national socialism, right? Uh, so all of these. So what I focus on uh, is really rather the uh, discourses and strategies of the incumbent political parties. Okay, so, the, uh, you know, uh, let me say at the outset that, and I will outline the, the four uh, family resemblances. Um, the, uh, let me say that all the four discourses and strategies that I will now underline foster polarization in the society. That's their raison d'etre, you know. They foster polarization in the society, and these are political parties that thrive in a polarized setting. You know, it's their lifeblood. Uh, uh, and you know they in, in so in, they do their utmost to generate high levels of polarization in politics and society. Now, first of all, they consistently present a dynamic, energetic discourse that is critical of the sluggishness sluggishness of the established political parties, uh, as well as the intellectuals. Um, you know, in addition to this promise of novelty in politics, they underline their own energy, dynamism, and determination at times to do away with the relics of an old dysfunctional system. Uh, such promise of novelty is laden with an anti-regime streak at times. They present themselves as doers rather than talkers and look down on the quibbles the petty objections of the established members, as they put it, of the parliament and intellectuals. Actually, such uh, contempt you know, for the existing regime is reminiscent of the words of the Minister of Propaganda in Nazi Germany, Goebbels, who in a text in Der Angriff uh, that he wrote in 1928, he said, we are coming neither as friends or neutrals. We come as enemies. As the wolf attacks the sheep, so come we. Um, so this is actually rather reminiscent. And when Hugo Chavez was sworn in as the president of Venezuela uh, in, uh, on February, in February 1999, he actually broke protocol and put his hand on the 1961 constitution. And you know, he said, I promise uh, that you know, this moribund constitution will go away and we're gonna have a you know, uh, new Magna Carta uh, befitting uh, the times. Uh, so, you know. 
Um, actually, I want to give an example from Poland too, uh, you know, on, in this regard, because in Poland, um, you know, the Law and Justice Party that is now tearing apart the judiciary there, uh, was founded in 2001 with the aim, as they put it, to purge the Polish state of what they call the UKLA, you know, UKLA referring to the Liberal Communist Pact deal, blaming the liberal wing of the Solidarity for enabling the old communist establishment. Now, um, so uh, you can see, I mean, not only dynamism, uh, you know, that we will do, uh, but also, you know, at times, uh, anti-regime, uh, you know, element in the discourse is pretty evident. Uh, in Erdogan's speeches, you know, you see, uh, you know, he says uh, nothing will be uh, the same anymore. Uh, and also, also, of course, in every speech, more or less, in every speech, he talks about, uh, you know, how actually, uh, and you're gonna, this is going to remind you of something uh, that I just heard actually at the UN, that he says they have done more than any administration in Republican history, uh, which is, you know, similar to actually what Donald Trump was saying at the UN. And, you know, he actually talks about the, the number of uh, roads and the bridges and the airports, and some of which are true, of course, I must say. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of the number of, uh, you know, uh, airports and uh, uh, bridges uh, and roads. Um, uh, but, you know, basically he boasts about it in every speech. We are doers, you know. Uh, so this is one characteristic that I depicted, actually, in looking at these regimes. Now, secondly, the, uh, what they do is they hijack the discourse of the opposition parties and combine conservatism with a popular and plebeian appeal. Um, in his seminal work, Social Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy, Barrington Moore said, uh, fascism was an attempt to make reaction and conservatism popular and plebeian, through which conservatism, of course, lost the substantial connection it did have with freedom. Um, in Venezuela, the Bolivarian Constitution of 1999 clearly introduced many plebiscitary measures um, to go beyond the politics of representation. Uh, and in fact, leaders, uh, you know, claimed legitimacy by basically saying that they speak as proxies of the people. They don't represent the people anymore. They speak as proxies of the people. They are the people. Uh, Erdogan's uh, Justice and Development Party in Turkey also claimed to be the party of the people. Uh, you know, Erdogan himself uh, said, the people who support, uh, you know, the Justice and Development uh, Party, in fact, are Turkey. You know, we are the real Turkey. Uh, you know, uh, and this is actually, this comes up in his uh, speeches a lot. So this is the second characteristic, you know, the activeness, uh, the, you know, um, this anti-regime and also this popular discourse. Thirdly, uh, they create and foster their own civil society organizations and contrast them with what they portray as the other unpatriotic elements. Uh, now, in Venezuela, the word civil society uh, by the government is actually replaced with the word community because civil society has this elitist connotation. And in fact, it's the community that represents the grassroots. In Turkey, on the other hand, Justice and Development Party was specifically active in the formation of pro-family 
women's uh, or civil society organizations, you know. Uh, going back, uh, bringing to mind what uh, Valerie Sperling just described in Russia, uh, you know, uh, putting women within the family, uh, limiting, uh, you know, the existence of women within the family. And in fact, uh, the Turkish family platform established in 2012 is the first coalition dedicated to promoting family values and consists of over 90 civil society organizations that are, you know, uh, that have ties with the government, you know, that are pro-family. So in a way, when the government has to engage in debates with the civil society in their, you know, talks with the EU, they engage with, uh, in negotiations with their own civil society uh, organizations. So in a way, um, you know, um, uh, in, in this case, Justice and Development Party opts for being the government and opposition at the same time. Uh, you know, we can say that maybe uh, with, you know, the number of uh, the civil society organizations. Of course, not to mention the uh, recently increasing suppression uh, of, uh, you know, the gay lesbian pride parades that were actually really wonderful events, you know, only, uh, you know, uh, four or five years ago uh, they were there, uh, and now uh, they are no longer uh, allowed. Um, so fourthly, um, and that's my last point, and I'm going to end with this, they create a new language of politics. Uh, that is uh, crude is the word that I'm going to use, crude language and openly puts down uh, the opposition with the persistent utilization of demeaning words. You know, describing the opposition sometimes e even like a less than human, you know, uh, you hear uh, expressions like that. You know, Chavez, for instance, pitted the loyal, patriotic, humble, and hardworking Pueblo against an immoral, you know, uh, self-serving and less than human elite. Um, um, uh, well, the opposition jumps into this game too. So the opposition starts the name calling uh, in most cases. And then politics is limited uh, to that debate. You know, it actually frames politics within uh, such, uh, you know, name calling. Uh, you know, you see the same thing. Supporters of Erdogan re refer to the Istanbul bourgeoisie and intellectuals as those who sip whiskey by the Bosphorus, or expressions like mon cher, you know, uh, as opposed to the people, the real people uh, of the country, right? Um, so, um, and opposition, of course, uh, plays its part in responding to that. So they actually uh, limit political discussion. Such polarized language enhances support and loyalty for the incumbent political party and its leader by making it impossible to engage in a dialogue with the opposition. So they almost make you know, en engaging in a dialogue with the opposition impossible. Uh, uh, for they are no longer perceived as adversaries, but rather enemies. Uh, so I'm going to stop here. Thank you very much. Um, it's been fascinating to listen to the other uh, cases of authoritarian or strongman politics. Uh, for, there's obviously overlap and difference. One of the differences is, what's an election? We don't do those in China. <laughs> uh, you know, Xi Jinping did not have to win an election. He had to win the support of a relatively small group of people above him. And he was uh, appointed 
as uh, general secretary of the party. Well, I should say first appointed as heir apparent and then eventually being able to uh, take over five years later. Um, and in that sense, there's a tremendous amount of continuity with China's past. Uh, we haven't passed through an era that could be considered liberal, much less democratic. Uh, the party has always been there, and it's always been um, authoritarian, and the leaders have varied in strength, but um, have always been generally fairly strong. Um, I think that w one point I'd like to make here, though, is that contrary to a lot of what is said about China, I don't think that the system was ever institutionalized. That is to say, there is this thesis that China had somehow perfected authoritarian rule because it had strong institutions and was able to pass uh, power on peacefully. Um, it was never institutionalized. Uh, and in fact, I think you see that, um, you know, that she, um, well, Jiang Zemin simply did not pass on power to Hu Jintao. Uh, Hu Jintao never became the number one leader of China. He never had control of the military. If you don't have control of the military, you're not really leader of China. Uh, and of course, Hu Jintao, um, well, he didn't have the choice of passing on power. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping came in um, really defeating what appears to have been an attempted coup d'etat. Uh, that's the Bo Xilai case. Uh, you know, he came in, apparently Bo Xilai did not accept the decision of the 17th Party Congress to name Xi Jinping a heir apparent. And according to Xi Jinping, there were communications between Bo Xilai and the head of the military, uh, well, deputy head, the Xu Taiho, Guo Bushong, these people. This is extraordinary to have a high civil official apparently in conversation with, well, include Zhou Yongkang, the head of the uh, police force, and the military. And of course, this has all been kind of handled in some ways remarkably quietly. Uh, Xi Jinping certainly doesn't talk about a, uh, an apparent coup d'etat, although he has had some very, very strong words, uh, both at the uh, sixth plenum a, a year before the 19th Party Congress, and then again in the 19th Party Congress. So this is not exactly a peaceful transfer of power, and that's what I mean when I say that I really don't think that uh, we can speak of this as having been institutionalized and that something has changed. I think, um, I think in some ways it's a system that demands a, a strong leadership. Um, I think that um, these events have shaped the way Xi Jinping has approached power. Uh, I think that when he was elevated to this heir apparent position, uh, there's a phrase that Zheng uh, Jinghong, one of the top leaders, uh, said that uh, Xi Jinping is somebody that we can all accept. You know, that suggests that they were thinking of him as somebody who got along, could compromise, would, would kind of wait his turn, be a good boy, and maybe in five years you can have some real power, something like that. And Xi Jinping just didn't want to play a second Hu Jintao. Uh, and so I think the events of the preceding period um, uh, strengthened him in that convention, 
conviction. And of course, the Bushy Lai case, as I just suggested, suggested that the political system was really facing a, a high degree of crisis. And I guess where there's crisis, there's opportunity. Uh, the, the really interesting case is in September of 19, uh, 2012, uh, Xi Jinping skipped an appointment with Hillary Clinton and said he had something better to do and disappeared for two weeks. It's never been publicly explained what he was doing. There was this rumor that he'd hurt his shoulder swimming, but I, I'm dubious of that explanation. At least it didn't help, hurt him from getting on the phone and perhaps talking to some other leaders. Uh, this was four days after Ling Jihua, who was in, in charge of the general office, a very powerful position, had been moved out. So the, the, again, the system is in real crisis. And it seems to be in those two weeks that Xi Jinping extracted some sort of a mandate to go after corruption, to go after Zhou Yangkang, to root out Ling Jihua's extensive network. Uh, and I deduce that really because it's just shortly after the close of the 18th Party Congress that the first tiger, so-called, high official falls, a man by the name of uh, Li Chunchang, uh, Deputy Party Secretary of Sichuan, who was associated with Zhou Yongkang. Um, and in any case, the, so it happens in this rather rapid pace. So you can see him consolidating power really rather rapidly. Uh, I think that he had some sort of a mandate I don't think the people who acquiesced to this had any idea what Xi Jinping would do uh, with that mandate. Uh, he, well, I'm not sure how many tigers and flies we're up to now, but it's, uh, uh, well, if you're talking about total numbers of punishment, uh, we're well over a million now. Uh, so he has been remaking the political elite and targeting his political enemies um, uh, as he goes. So. Um, I think that the, he, his actions have also been shaped by a couple of things. I think it's one theme that has come up uh, repeatedly is this sense of weakness, that the period before the strongmen were somehow uh, weak in one way or another, perhaps with Yeltsin genuinely in chaos and weak. Uh, in the, the Hu Jintao era was widely perceived in China as an era of weakness. Uh, I think that weakness might have been caused by the mother-in-law, that is Chinese expression for the guy upstairs, Jiang Zemin, uh, in this case. We don't know what Hu Jintao would have done if he'd really had power. Um, at any case, it was perceived as a period of weakness that he had to reassert the party uh, authority against to um, build, this, build it up again. The other is, of course, what had happened to the Soviet Union. Uh, the fall of the Soviet, uh, Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Uh, Xi Jinping has been absolutely obsessed by that, uh, that fail, failure. And if uh, Putin thought that that was one of the great catastrophes of the 20th century, I think Xi Jinping would have agreed with him. Uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, as they used to say in the 1950s, the Soviet Union of, tomorrow is the, or of today is China of tomorrow. And he was afraid that that might replay itself. So these uh, external events, I think, are, um, are, are things that really shape the way he's approached um, power. Um, the other thing, of course, is that Xi Jinping is a princeling. There's simply no way of getting around the fact that he is the son of a very high political leader. And I think that it's true 
that princelings um, have a sense of ownership. Um, maybe we have some princelings here that can dispute that or, or confirm it. In uh, any case, um, no, I, th I think that, the, you know, I think that um, there is a sense, at least among some princelings, and I don't want to say that they're all the same, much less that they all agree with each other, uh, but some sense that people like Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao were just sort of, you know, interim people, housekeepers for a little while, and now things could go back to the true owners of China, the people who had created the new China, uh, and uh, they were not going to allow the party that their fathers had built to somehow be destroyed. And I think that, that has really shaped a lot of uh, Xi Jinping's approach to these things. Um, oh, I, in speaking of the failure of the um, Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, that brings us back around to the macho themes that we started this uh, uh, panel with. Uh, you'll recall in Xi Jinping's first uh, talk down in Guangzhou after he was made party secretary, uh, he talked about the, the fall of the Communist Party, Soviet Union, and said that people had lost their ideals and convictions, something he's worked very hard to try to reverse, and that there was no real man to stand up and um, confront this danger. So he did introduce a macho element of leadership, which resonates quite nicely with what Putin is doing. But we are eternally grateful that he has not gone around without his shirt. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh without the shirt just doesn't work. <laughs> Sorry. Um, at any case, uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, sort of narratives, you know, I think, and legitimacy issues, I think Xi Jinping's had a couple problems. One is that China has developed very, very nicely by abandoning a lot of what Mao did. And so there is a very large current of thought in China that says, well, keep going. Uh, adopt more private economy, possibly liberalize the political system in various ways. Uh, and of course, then the other side of that argument is you're losing what the ancestors created. Uh, you can't do that. And so Xi Jinping has this remarkable speech on the two 30-year periods where he has to try to merge these two things and say that neither can negate the other, which leaves you with something of a hodgepodge of ideology. Uh, it's something maybe to work on in the next term. And of course, then there's the theme of nationalism, which has come up on more than one occasion in this panel. Um, there is a narrative in China that the US is just losing it and going downhill very quickly, um, which I don't know, maybe it's correct. Uh, at least in terms of global GDP, the U.S. has maintained 25% of global GDP for 30 years. It hasn't moved. It hasn't budged. So if we can get our internal political act together, maybe after today's hearings, uh, <laughs> step in the right direction, uh, you know, that's something to be, but in any case, that's a narrative in China that the U.S. is disappearing or declining. China's on the rise. And I think that goes along very well with this assertiveness, particularly in the South China Sea. Uh, the Permanent Court of Arbitration says uh, these are not islands, uh, and the, there is no such thing as historical rights, according to the law of the sea. And China builds them into artificial islands, 
militarizes them, uh, puts weapons and all that on it, and sort of defies uh, international opinion because, like Crimea, it's ours and always has been, uh, and so forth. So you have these sorts of narratives. Um, and of course, the narrative of containment that the US is always trying to hold China down. If we're trying to hold China down, we're really not effective. So I wouldn't worry about this if I were China. At any case, uh, those are a few themes, I think, from Xi Jinping. Great. And, uh, carry on. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Karen, that was, uh, thank you for having us all. I want to try to build a little bit of a framework that we can get all of these, uh, I thought, <laughs> terrific, uh, terrific uh, presentations in. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we translated this book uh, into Vietnamese. Mm. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this book today, Why Nations Fail, by Darren Ashimaglu and Jim Robinson. And I, I, I put turkey in a little bit of the... Uh, analysis that's coming after here. And we translated, in this, in this room, we had uh, four members of the Vietnamese Politburo. We translated this book into Vietnamese language. It became a bestseller. It's deeply subversive to the Communist Party. And the, uh, the, when Jim Robinson was presenting the book, they, they thought he was the equivalent of John Lennon. We, we want to sign the book. We, wanted, we want you to t tell us about this book. But what's interesting about this book is that it talks about what every panelist has talked about today is how is elite politics determine the outcome of the governance of the nation. And I think what Asha Meglo and Robinson do is they say, why, why is being successful, why is choosing to be successful so difficult? And I think they they do a very good job of saying that in societies where elite politics cannot expand into an open society, but rather go in the direction of a closed society, I think that also creates strong men. I think that also creates strong men. So I have done a, a favor for everybody. I've taken a 500-page book and made a one-page diagram about it. Uh, so. Uh, if you come to power, and I think, I think you know, the, the Philippines is, I thought the Philippines is a really good example of what you said, which is the Philippines never really decides to have an open, you know, I think the, the monopolies, the ownership of the land, uh, all these things that you need to have to have a, a, a plural society. Karen, I'll email it to you. Uh, uh, all these things you need to have an open society uh, when you when you when you get to uh, changing of power and what what Ashimag and Robinson say is that at a critical juncture, whether it's a critical juncture at, at, at where where uh, Putin is going to take power or where you're going to change governments here or you're going to have Erdogan changing his mind or or uh, Xi Jinping is going to uh, have a different strategy and a lot of criticism that that Asha Magdalene and Robinson got for, from this presentation was, it doesn't explain China. <laughs> and so I, I think there is, as you said, authoritarianism that really works pretty well. I mean, it works pretty well to a point. And I think that question of working well to a point is where this sort of nexus of where 
uh, strong men come in. So I made another slide. Uh, the World Bank has decided that it, it knows, uh, it, it has done a survey of governance in all the countries in the world. And they have, they have six, uh, they have six uh, things they, they, they look at, voice and accountability, political stability, uh, government effectiveness, regulatory quality, rule of law, and, co and control of uh, corruption. And they, they, they've done this for almost 25 or 30 years. They, they look at every single country. It's completely not perfect, but in general it works really well. Uh, if you get a perfect score on any one of these, you get 100 points. So if you live in Norway, you might have, you know, Norway runs pretty well. It might have a 500, it might be 500. Myanmar is 50 or, you know, 80, something like that. So what I've tried to do is sort of take a look at a group of countries that uh, have strongman possibilities, okay? And, and where, where do these possibilities, where do they come out? And I, I, I put in here the Philippines, I put in China, Thailand, which has recently had a, a strongman other direction. Uh, and I looked up Turkey today, just because I, w I knew you would be on the panel. And Turkey also, I, we used to use the word middle income trap. I think we're going to change it to middle governance trap. So everybody that's in a certain governance level, that seems to be where, when you, when you don't have the strong governance, that's where strongman politics takes over more easily. Okay. And I think um, we're seeing, in, in, at least in Southeast Asia now, we just saw a very successful election in Malaysia. And we're going to be having a, a, an important election next year in Indonesia. And according to this, I mean, I think it's very telling that, that Malaysia's governing score is a couple hundred points higher, or 150 points higher, than Indonesia's. And I think that's telling that, that, that the, the, the current government of, of Malaysia is not a strongman government. It's a fully elected, uh, pretty dynamic takeover of from from a quasi strongman to a to a democratic system, and I think that 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 these indicators, these governing indicators, are what the sort of choice that I think Asha Maglu and Robinson present, and 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 give us an opportunity to to um, to to take a look at. So. I think the other important idea uh, that Rob, Archie Maglow and Robinson have is you need to be able to move directions. You, you, you need state power at a critical juncture to get a society either in a strongman direction or in a more open society direction. And this is where uh, Myanmar uh, failed. So Aung San Suu Kyi wins an election but she can't move the country. So she, she, she never gets a critical juncture where she can move the country in a certain direction because she never really gets that type of power. Uh, I think that also might have been true. 
I think, in the Philippines case. Okay? I, I don't think the power that, you know, I agree that, that Cory Aquino took power and she couldn't move the country. I think, to some extent, it happened in South Africa when uh, the uh, African National Congress took over. They also couldn't move. They, they did not move the dial in the, in the proper direction. So a lot of times you get a democratically elected uh, uh, dynamic, charismatic person who can't move the system in a direction that doesn't, uh, that, that, that opens it up, that, that gets elite politics to moving in a, in, in a certain direction. And so let me just use that as the framework and sort of open it up for, for questions. And I'll try to be the moderator. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I, I'll, I'll say it again. I like what I'm seeing because I also think about these issues, and I think that you've done a great job in putting the right factors on the right side. Could you just uh, explain what you mean, uh, uh, clarify, uh, elite groups enlarge into a broad coalition. Yep. That can mean almost anything to me. And if you could clarify that, it's probably also in the right uh, category. Yeah, I, I, you know, my most recent experience is, is Myanmar. Um, and uh, in Myanmar, um, we had a stunning election. Okay, stunning. And in this stunning election, uh, the National League for Democracy, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, uh, does something which is inconceivable. The ethnic, the ethnic states vote for her and not for the ethnic parties that were running. So that Aung San Suu Kyi wins the Burman majority party, also wins, with the exception of where Arakan state, where the, the Rohingya crisis is taking place, in every other of the seven uh, states, she wins the majority party. When she comes to power, she cannot and does not incorporate those ethnic groups into the governing system. She misses that opportunity at a critical juncture to incorporate and her directional, I mean, she doesn't necessarily have great direction, but she, she has in general knows which way to go. She can't do that, and this one takes over and dominates what you see in contemporary Myanmar, which is a disaster, that this system takes over. I think that's also true in some of the examples that we're, we're, we're talking about today. I, Tur Turkey's really complicated because it's a very successful place, right? Myanmar's not complicated and easy to come at because it's, it's a pre-modern state. You know, the countries that we're talking about uh, on this panel are pretty well-developed nations. Uh, and, and well-developed economies, I think with the exception of Russia. Uh, so so, so the, the example I'm using is you win a political f a battle, but you can't then convert that into uh, uh, a society that includes multiple ethnic groups. That's, that's, that's what she did not do. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great explanation. Now I understand why you... It doesn't. It's, it, there, Turkey's excluding, not adding. I think, I think you would agree with that. Anyway, please, the next question. So, um, I, uh, my name is Jacob Pakula. Nice to meet you all. Thank you yeah. very much for the presentation. It was fantastic. Um, are you suggesting that 
uh, strongman leadership is is like a, a necessary evil, a stage in in creating a um, an inclusive in, inclusive institutions as as Achimoglu and Robinson to put it, or open access orders. Is this like I, I think cronyism, strongmanism, is pushing in the wrong direction, and is a in general a bad force. I don't I don't think it's a necessary uh, prerequisite uh, uh, for development. There's a, there's a theory of development that says you know you need a, an authoritarian beginning. It has a lot of credibility. I think that's what uh, I think that's what Joseph was talking about. It, it, it's you can't dismiss authoritarian uh, authoritarian beginnings. I think this analysis fits these countries better because these countries all get to a certain point uh, where usually authoritarianism can get you pretty far, but once you get to a certain point, you got to go further. And I don't think I don't think any of the nations that we've talked about, including China, have gotten further. I think, I think, sorry, it's really important to disentangle um, the, this elite rule and a, a sort of a anti-establishment. Strongman right. leader, so being able to break up the, the elite rule, are you, is, is, can we expect that in some cases a strongman ruler is, is capable of, of breaking Let's up? Let's ask uh, one of our panelists to help with that. <laughs> I, mean, I think the presentation you gave on, 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 the, on Duterte was that he has some ability. Yeah. I, I, thought, I thought that was a terrific... Uh, observation, and I was fascinated by by that. That he's he's a capable guy. He's uh, much more much more dynamic than I thought he was before I listened to you. And I, I could see that. I think the question is fitting your presentation. If you wanted to, I'm not able to answer um, globally. And um, I I I like the chart, but I like not to think globally. Also, I think it's very important to look at the local dynamics. So for the Philippines and the Philippines only, uh, because Philippines has its own history and its own social dynamic, um, Duterte kind of, he, he really broke something. But we don't know again if this will be helpful for the country. For the moment, uh, the result is 10,000 people who died in the street because of the uh, war on drugs. Um, we don't know if it's going to do, uh, to, to do something good for the economy. We don't know if it's going to really move the society. And I think because of the elite, because he's still really much, he needs the support of the police, he needs the support of the military, he needs the support of China, he cannot lose the support of America, even if he says so. I don't see how he can do it, but I am not a political scientist. But he has too many sides uh, to which he's tied and that can allow him to move for the first years, let's say. But after, at some point, he will be trapped. That's my guess. Uh, my name is Shukri Chunar, uh, and I'd like to ask this question for uh, Ms. Kadolu. So, um, I don't know, for the people who doesn't know, so we have the AK party, as you know, everybody who has been in dominance over the last 20 years. And then now we have the uh, JHP, which is Republican Party. So, uh, and JHP in the last 20 years, this is, I literally, be, I want to just explain it with an example. I feel like when we are talking about AK Party, the main party right now, it's like, it's like the minor league head guy. 
I feel like that. Like, I feel like they're in the minor league and they are the top guy. So because they're in the minor league, they are the top guy kind of. Like, they never get to the major league. If they were in major league, maybe they will never make it up. But yeah. just because of their minor league and their favorite. The, the reason that I explain that is, I think, I'm not really 100% sure, but the JHP, the Republican Party, never passed 23%. Uh, 23% of favor by uh, percentage of votes. And I never under, and I realized that uh, AK Party, uh, AK Party has a way of eliminating basically powerful, uh, powerful upcoming one. Uh, somebody would say, for example, uh, uh, I forget right now his name, I'm sorry, but uh, he was a leader, AK Party had an, another leader, uh, Gülolu. Uh, and basically, Davutoğlu. AK Party eliminated the Gül. Uh, Gül ya Davutoğlu, either one. Yeah, Davutoğlu was another Davutoğlu. one. Okay. I was going you to take uh, Gül. Gül was basically, <laughs> yeah, Gül was basically eliminated. Basically, AK Party was very successful of eliminating everybody. But my question is, uh, how could any anybody in Turkey, not seeing it from the outside of the Turkey, of course, would be able to go with somebody who never passed the 23% rate? And they have always been favored by, maybe misleading, but always with the bourgeois, the, the ones that are like drinking whiskey in the uh, Bosphorus. Yeah. So how is this ever going to come to an end? I, my only hope is basically uh, after the next uh, voting, they cannot go anymore because we are now, I think every four years we are going to change president so they can't go anymore, right? I mean, they have to stop. What is next, basically? What is, what is next Turkey is waiting? So what happens magically if right now Erdogan disappears? What would happen to the country? Thank you. Great question. Um, I like the guys of the drinking the whiskey. At the, on the, uh, yes. I'm Sipping the, whiskey kind of also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I've been there. I like I say it the Four Seasons, right there on the water. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm familiar with that group. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I cannot, I mean, uh, you know, be a fortune teller. But, I mean, I know, like, what happened in Venezuela, you know, after Chavez, you know, I don't know if it's uh, what, they, what they have now is better or worse, to be honest, with uh, Maduro. So, uh, so uh, there's always someone uh, within the party uh, that'll be there. So, I mean, your last question, what, what, what would happen? Uh, now, with the uh, Republican People's Party, the main opposition party, I, you know, of course, I agree. You're basically saying, you know, uh, they've been so archaic, and you know, they're not your usual. I mean, you know, political party that is fostering freedoms in the country. You know, I, of course, I know all of that. You know, they are in a state of lethargy. In fact, at times, you know, uh, I mean, uh, basically bordering at uh, nationalism, uh, really. Uh, in fact, competing with uh, Justice and Development Party through nationalism rather than through, you know, uh, be, being advocates of rights uh, and um, freedoms. Now, your question uh, makes me think of actually uh, a research that I, you know, uh, completed, uh, I, you know, in uh, Istanbul, actually, with, uh, you know, uh, the 
voters of the four political uh, parties, uh, you know, the, the constituencies. Uh, so, you know, there were like 400, uh, 400 sample, 100 from each political party in the parliament, of course. Uh, Republican People's Party is one of them. You know, there's a National Section Party, and then there's the, uh, you know, the pro-Kurdish um, uh, People's you know, Democratic Party. Uh, so, uh, and... Uh, what I saw, I mean, I actually, the main question uh, for me was, I asked the question, uh, who wants rights? Okay. I mean, I could do this research, of course, back in 2006 before the uh, coup attempt. I mean, now uh, I, I'm actually glad that I completed it in May because in July there was the you know, coup and the research, could, you couldn't ask people what part party you voted for, right, uh, any, anymore. Uh, or political party orientations, as we called it. But the question of who wants rights, okay, uh, it, uh, I, I mean, I could see, uh, you know, uh, we ask questions uh, regarding perceptions of rights, you know, uh, civil rights, political rights. We followed the whole Freedom House thing, okay? Freedom House, you know, gives you the real situation. We wanted to see how people perceive it. I mean, do they think they live in heaven? You know, whereas there are all these, you know, uh, you know, things going on, uh, freedoms are being curtailed. Like, you know, uh, this is what we wanted to see. Uh, and um, uh, in a way, I mean, those who want rights are still those who vote for Republican People's Party and, uh, you know, People's Democratic Party, uh, you know, the... Uh, I mean, mostly, uh, actually, uh, the party has changed shape so much that people's, you know, uh, Democratic Party, uh, uh, many people, I mean, it became Turkey Party. It is not the regional, you know, uh, Kurdish party anymore. It wasn't, actually, uh, especially in 2015. Uh, so, so the, I mean, your, you know, question uh, is basically, um, uh, there are people, uh, you know, who, have a different notion of freedom. It was Pankaj Mishra, uh, you know, who I think said in these new authoritarian regimes, you know, uh, many people have a different notion of freedom, you know, associated it with, with consumerism. Okay, I mean, you know, because they, there is a political economy of these regimes. I mean, you know, they have, they pursue neoliberal policies, you know, uh, they are wildly capitalist, you know, uh, is the uh, expression that I could use. Uh, so the notion of freedom in a way becomes, uh, you know, the notion and uh, the possess, right, possessive uh, notion. Uh, um, so, but there are still people who have a different notion of freedom. I mean, who think, you know, free speech is important, right? Uh, those are the ones uh, who, because there is no one else, uh, they will continue to vote for uh, the uh, People's Republican Party and other, you know, the... the um, I, I think he was trying to get, uh, the question was, how fractured has Erdogan made the system that other, other players can't, I mean, how, how bad? Oh, is, I think it was how fractured is the current system, and is it fractured so much that the political system that he was describing, can it get back in the game, or has Erdogan changed the dynamic? I think that was... It's very, very fractured. I mean, it's, you know, divided, yeah. if that's what you're alluding to, right? That's uh, what he was, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, there is a huge polarization to the point of, you know, uh, not seeing each other as citizens. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, there is a long answer. I mean, the whole, when uh, Justice and Development Party uh, won the elections uh, in uh, 2002, I mean, with the you know, plurality actually of yeah. the votes and for, formed the first government, um, many people you know, thought, hey, you know, the so-called the center periphery cleavage, you know, the uh, big metropolitan centers, the Istanbul bourgeoisie, and then the rest, uh, you know, the Anatolia. You know, the periphery actually arrived at the center, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, people thought only if they could dance a bit, you know, like that, you know, uh, and engage in a dialogue with each other, uh, you know, they learn from uh, one another, right? Uh, but that's not what happened. I mean, what we have right now is, I mean, you could call it, if you remain in that center periphery cleavage, you could call it the revenge of the periphery. Uh, right? I mean, that's what's going on, uh, I think. So I don't want to monopolize. Another so, question? Yeah, um, so thanks for a wonderful talk. So my question is kind of like related to the previous one. It seems to me there are two kinds of strongman. One is insider, the other one is outsider. So insiders, for example, Putin and Xi, they're actually cl uh, climbing up the ladder and get to uh, and be the strongman in, in that nation. And we also have outsiders who are anti-establishment. So if those uh, strongmen uh, uh, screw things up, are they are insiders more able to direct the blames to the institution like the party or the government, or are outsiders more able to blame the whole system like it is the system is corrupt and we're, I'm not able to do anything about that? So do you see a difference between insiders or outsiders in Great this question. case? So let's have both Joseph and Valerie. I, I think that's a wonderful um, question. Uh, question. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're not talking at all tonight about Taiwan. Uh, right. But it's a wonderful example, going back to this question of somebody, strongman politics, that then the turned in the right direction. to a democratic Yeah. Um, and it's also to be to your question, uh, there's an insider. Um, how much more insider can you be than the son of the last leader uh, who changes the system, moves it in the right direction? Uh, you might say that Deng Xiaoping was an insider that moved China, we thought, in the, well, it was in the right direction. It wasn't far enough uh, or permanent enough. Uh, Xi Jinping now seems to be the insider who is moving it back, and I can't see him making another move, and I'm afraid he's going to be around for a while. Valerie? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way to conceive of it. I, I can't stop thinking about Donald Trump. I know, I know I wasn't invited here to talk about the United States. <laughs> well, you can go ahead. Right? You know, please, but, please. This is the, <laughs> but, um, the ACE Center. We can do whatever we right. want. <laughs> but, you know, but there's an example where you have somebody who's really an insider and an outsider all at once, right? He's he's an outsider in that he's not um, of the you know of the political system, but he's you know he couldn't be any more of an elite insider, you know, in a way. And so, in some ways, I don't love the distinction, you know. And I'm trying to think about what what Putin is and where he's come from. I mean, in some ways, he's very much the insider. You know, he comes from the Siloviki. He comes from the power ministries, you know, the KGB, the sort of essence of power inside the Soviet Union. Um, and yet, you know, and yet he's, uh, he's in this interesting position, or at least he was initially, of 
trying to come across well in the West, you know, and dressing up and not doing the sort of, um, you know, Soviet working class uh, thing that Yeltsin sort of tried to, to do. So I don't know. I, th I think it's, um, but, but has he shaken up the system? And I think the answer is yes, you know, as an insider. So it's maybe it's, maybe it's not always a, um, an easy distinction to make. Please. Sure. I want to go back to your previous slide about governance indicator and per capita income, and you mentioned about Taiwan. I'm just curious about, um, to your previous point about authoritarianism only gets you so far, what can we learn from places like Taiwan and Singapore? They both had a strong leader before, and they probably transformed after that. But on the other hand, like, on one hand, you have Singapore continue to grow, but Taiwan, because it's probably like too democratic, so it becomes really difficult to implement certain strategy, and the, the growth just slowed down. So I wonder what can we learn from these examples? Um, Joseph, I think I, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I think that Taiwan's growth problems are caused by a whole lot of things, including the fact that you only have a very small uh, domestic market of 23 million, and and they haven't seemed to have found the next big and a thing. Per capita income of fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Uh, well, they're they're prosperous. They're yeah, but yeah. their their growth has slowed down to yeah. what about two percent yeah. a year, which. Uh, in the but United 2 States. 2% at that level is pretty good. It is. Yeah. It is. It is pretty good. Um, no, I, what, what can you... Uh, uh, Singapore uh, grew very quickly. I think it's still growing reasonably well. You put it uh, on this list because it's a city. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that does affect the politics. And, and you know, I, I, li I love Singapore because it's really accessible, but it's, it doesn't fit... It doesn't, have, it doesn't have the problems you're talking about in the rural areas. It doesn't have the rural areas. But it, it's certainly, it, you know, the, the PAP is a single-party state, it's, but it's, 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 it has a, it has a, a democratic, uh, uh, it has a democratic uh, sort of loop in it. I mean, they, 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 the society is open, and that open society affects the ruling party, I think, the way that the, the KMT party and now, used to be, used and now to, the DPP. It yeah. used to be, but yeah. I, think, I, I think your question is that those, those are the successful countries that start with authoritarianism and then switch to a democratic system. That's sort of the gold standard. I think the countries that we're talking about in the middle haven't done that yet. Now the question is, is this period of authoritarianism, is that going to be the new normal, or is what you're talking about going to another level of governance which we used to think as the path forward, is that going to exist anymore? I, I guess that's the, that's the question for the panel. This, this idea that you, know, you get to a certain point, and I think all the countries that are re represented on the panel are all fairly successful countries. Uh, I think with the little bit of an exception of, I'm not sure how successful Russia is. But it has a high income for, because of, of other things. Uh, is the new normal, are any of these countries that we're talking about on the panel thinking about the Taiwan solution of having a more open society and a, and a more uh, dynamic governing system? No. Certainly no. <laughs> I think... No. No. Erdogan. You know, I think that under Jiang Zemin there was some toying with the idea. Right. Uh, and now they have gone back to no, we want to keep this party in power forever. 
Yep. Uh, that's the real difference. There was some real effort to do some political reform under Jiang Zemin, and that has stopped. Any more questions? I, I have two questions, but yes. they are related. Uh, the first is, how do you measure a strongman, whether it's a good strongman or bad strongman? <laughs> do you tie it into the governance? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. The second question is related to just mentioned Taiwan. Uh, I was in Taiwan in January this year. I joined a tour group, the tour Taiwan, and then have a chat with the tour guy who is about uh, late 50s, a local person, and he said he compared uh, Taiwan and mainland China. He said uh, before Deng Xiaoping, uh, China is in 30 years of internal fight, okay, cultural revolution or whatever internal fight, no development economy. After that, Deng Xiaoping said, stop fighting, focus on economy, so we know what happened. Right? And while Taiwan is different, and while in Chiang Jing Guo's time, he was a strong man, I would say a good strong man. So a lot of economic development, so Taiwan is a little tiger. But after that, become a democracy, everybody woke in the last 30 years, Infighting, a lot of polarization in politics is even worse than in the United States. So there's no progress. So there's no way out. So in a way, what happened in Taiwan become a bad example, show to the mainland what, what can happen in democracy. Well, of democracy. You become really so rich. I'd like to, to comment on that. Well, I, I haven't given up on Taiwan. I think it's doing quite fine. Uh, it's, uh, it, it is. It's uh, uh, gone through tremendous political change over the last even 10 years. Uh, you have a very vibrant democracy. You have elections coming up in November. We'll see where that leads it. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think that, that uh, the, the democratization of Taiwan has led to lower growth rates. I just don't buy that thesis. Governance, governance, uh, well. governance is, is just the way it was. It's, it's really doing quite well. Um, it's at 500. Uh, okay, another question. Can I say question. something about the... Yeah, please, I'm okay, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, if the, your rhetorical question about the good strong man, because I also alluded to it, uh, yeah. you know, I basically said I think of strength as a good thing uh, sometimes. Uh, so strength could be, you know, good for men and women, uh, or, or everyone, I mean, I think. Uh, but um, I wanted to actually share this story, but uh, because our time was go limited, ahead, ahead, so now is the chance, maybe. Um, this journalist and writer that I just referred to, who's been uh, you know, pris in prison now for life, uh, for you know, uh, giving subliminal messages, uh, um, he recently, uh, you know, published, I mean, from prison, uh, you know, uh, which doesn't happen very often, but he published a piece where he says uh, something that he learned from his father, he says, uh, in his prison cell, uh, every day uh, he wakes up, uh, you know, uh, and looks at a bull, okay, a bull that is trying to tear him apart. Uh, and he says, am I going to surrender, which is really what the people who put me here uh, want me to do. Uh, and he says every day uh, he takes the bull by the horns, imaginary bull, and actually brings the bull down uh, and, you know, uh, continues to live. And he says he finds the strength 
to be to do this uh, every day um, through uh, what he calls almost a godly power, which is imagination. Uh, he says, you know, they can make you live. I mean, they can decide about where you're going to live, but they cannot decide about what you're going to think, okay? Um, this is strength, I mean, to me. I mean, I see it as sheer strength. And I must say, I mean, walking by, uh, you know, Harvard Bookstore the other day, I saw his book, uh, you know, uh, in the window, uh, which made me, you know, it, I, was, I became very mindful uh, of how words can travel, actually, when people are in a prison cell. Uh, and I thought this, this was really uh, important. Uh, so yes, I mean, strength, you need the strength, actually, to uh, go on uh, living. So uh, it's, uh, it's important. So that's why I rather call this the politics of bullying. <laughs> yes, please. Mary Angin from the Weatherhead Center. Um, thank you all very much for this really informative and uh, interesting panel. And also a big thank you to the moderator for uh, presenting us the Ajamal and Robinson paradigm. It really fits the discussion quite well. Um, so when I first saw the poster of the, of the talk, I noticed that um, Erdogan looks kind of shorter than Putin. And that's like the first thing I thought was, Erdogan would really hate this if he saw it. <laughs> because in Turkey, even the fact that he is probably the, the tallest president we've ever had, it's kind of a big deal. So, and that really resonates with um, Putin's James, machismo. that's your problem, right? Okay. James, James, you have to take some responsibility for this, okay? Yeah. This could be a scar on the, on the, Asian, on the Asian Center, right? Um, so I was just thinking that really resonates with Putin's machismo and um, that applies to the other cases that you talked about. And so um, the question I had in mind is the charisma they have, all these leaders have uh, at home, whether it's routinized or not. I had asked this question in some other panel on, on Turkey, um, which actually Professor Kadol, who was chairing, uh, I'm talking about Weber's concept of routinizing charisma. Because, I mean, of course, we don't know whether um, these regimes will last long. But if you think that the, the charisma has not been routinized in their countries, that gives us some hope, I believe. And in the case of Erdogan, at least, I think um, what happens after Erdogan is quite blurred. I mean, he is a figure that is really not so, I mean, he's ir irreplaceable in the eyes of many, but he is also immortal. I mean, even if he manages to uh, <laughs> make himself the president for another two decades, let's say. He wants to switch the system and <laughs> Yeah, so that is the question I had for the, all the presenters, actually. Thank you very much. I just, on the charisma thing, I, when I mentioned um, uh, Malaysia, the soon-to-be leader of Malaysia is uh, uh, Anwar Ibrahim. He's a, he's a guy with real charisma. Um, real charisma, real guts, real, a piece of, you know, he's an opinionated guy, I think, going in the, in the right direction. But you can get someone else. Charisma, charisma can go both ways. You can get a charisma to go one way, and I think, I think on this panel we have, I think, I think you described uh, the Philippines as more charisma than we thought. We just don't know what direction it's going in. Yeah. <clears throat> if I have to start, <laughs> um, I don't think we can 
called Duterte really charismatic because on the poster he was quite nice, but in fact, if you compare it to the other, you know, he's, he's the tough man who will beat someone in the streets, but he does not have the physique. You do not want to see him without a shirt also. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he's not a strong man, in fact. And in fact, he had denied to be a strong man because when he was called a strong man in time, he said, I'm not a strong man. So, uh, but he is the one who will get his hand dirty. And that is not the first political figure in the Philippines who has this image, and it works. It works really well. Valerie, charisma? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, interestingly, when Putin came to power, right, he was nobody. You know, people sort of didn't know who he was. He was the head of the, you know, the internal um, FSB, uh, the, you know, um, and I think that what happened was that he, his handlers helped him build this kind of macho, charismatic um, persona. But, you know, but in the sense of routinization, um, I, I guess it doesn't live anywhere other than in Putin, right? Like it doesn't live in the United Russia party because it's not really a party, it's just sort of a vehicle for networking and you know supporting and f for supporting Putin basically so you know I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure about the lasting power of his charisma Karen please Karen please yeah you we, we need to hear from our, our guest so, our host just a very quick question what's the future for women as leaders in in these societies you're describing is there a future for women for women as leaders and including in the in the top positions? Joseph, let's start and go this way. Well, quickly because I know we're running out of time. The, the, the record of the Chinese Communist Party for female leaders is very very weak. They make up something like 8% of the Central Committee. There has never been a member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo who has been female. Uh, we call that the boys club, uh, no girls allowed. We heard a presentation last week on a burgeoning Me Too movement in China, but it's gonna be a long time till that gets up to the top. Uh, I must say, um, I don't know in terms of you know leadership, but uh, there is a very strong uh, you know women's movement in Turkey. In fact, especially uh, the past two years, you know the uh, the rallies on Women's Day were incredible. You know, uh, and you know, and uh, against everything. I mean, despite everything, you know, although you know they were not allowed. Uh, I mean, it was they were huge shows. Uh, in fact, of strength, if I may put it. Well, for the Philippines, we had two leaders who were female, and now we're still a vice president who is a female. So I think, yes, in fact, it, it's possible. There's some future. Yeah, there are some women uh, who are pretty highly placed in politics in Russia, but like everybody else, they're connected to Putin in one way or another, and they don't have their own independent power base. Uh, so there's that. However, that said, there is also a feminist you know, movement in Russia. It's small, um, but you can read about it in this book. <laughs> so there's always hope. There's always let, hope. Let me, let me add, Karen, on, on that question, so just modify it a little bit. What, what role does the internet play in all of the, of, of the four countries in politics? Let's go this way with Valerie. So how, how does the internet affect 
uh, politics in the countries that you're you're focusing on. Valerie, why don't you start? I, I think I think it's important, right? It's much easier to organize now that we have social media, um, even in dictatorships like uh, like Russia's. But that said, people in Russia, like everywhere else, are very siloed in their internet use. You you go on the internet and you look at things you already agree with. Um, and then you look at the cat videos. But for, for the most part, that, um, that, that fact that we look in a very siloed way uh, at the internet restricts, I think, its potential for mobilization. Okay, I've been, I've been instructed that only Valerie gets to oh, sorry. So anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. <laughs>